0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age, edited by Colin Barker, Gareth Dale, and Neil Davidson. This indispensable volume surveys revolutionary upheavals across the world between 1989 and 2019, drawing lessons for theorizing revolution today. The last three decades have seen an increase in the number of political upheavals that challenge existing power structures, many of them taking the form of urban revolts. This book compellingly explores a series of such upheavals from Eastern Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa, exploring the ways that protest movements developed into insurgent challenges to state power, and the strategies that regimes have deployed to contain and repress revolt. In addition, the book engages in theorization of revolution, dealing with questions such as the relationship between class struggle and social movements, and the prospects for socialist revolution in the 21st century revolutionary rehearsals in the neoliberal age edited by colin barker gareth dale and neil davidson out now from haymarket books welcome to the dig a podcast from jacobin magazine my name is daniel denver and i'm broadcasting from providence rhode island Salvador Allende's popular unity victory in 1970 held out the promise of a democratic path to socialism through the ballot box. But for U.S. President Richard Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, proving that socialism and democracy were compatible was intolerable. And socialism of any sorts was also, of course, intolerable to Chile's elites. And so, on September 11th, 1973, the U.S. helped General Augusto Pinochet overthrow Chile's democratic government, imposing a brutal dictatorship that would last until 1990. Instead of a model for democratic socialism, Chile became a laboratory for neoliberalism, a system that Pinochet and his regime ensured would shape Chile through its transition to democracy. In October 2019, protests against a subway fare hike erupted into an utterly massive mass movement against the Chilean political and economic status quo. Protesters fought off rampant police violence and built on a decade and a half cycle of social movement struggle that had challenged neoliberalism and the dictatorship-imposed constitution that kept that economic system in place. The protests forced the political establishment to convene a constituent assembly that is tasked with writing a new constitution to finally replace the constitution imposed under Pinochet. Chile's constituent assembly has now begun its work, and the presidential election is set for this November, as conservative President Sebastián Piñera's term comes to an end. There are a lot of moving pieces that I discuss in this interview with my two guests, Aldo Madariaga and Camila Vergara. And so now I'm going to give a brief overview to orient you to Chilean politics. Ahead of the upcoming presidential election, Chile's Communist Party departed the center-left Nueva Mayoría Coalition, or New Majority, and joined a left-wing coalition called Apruebo Dignidad, or I Approve Dignity, a coalition made up in large part of parties from the Frente Amplio, or Broad Front, which is in turn led by parties that emerged from Chile's student movement. Gabriel Boric, a legislator and former student leader from the party Convergencia Social, or Social Convergence, defeated Communist Party Mayor Daniel Hadway in an upset to win Aproebo Dignidad's presidential primary. So Gabriel Boric and not Daniel Hadway will be the left-wing candidate for president. Also in the mix are the traditional political parties, including the Socialist Party, that most recently brought President Michel Bachelet to power from 2006 to 2010 and then again from 2014 to 2018. But recently, the Socialist candidate lost the center-left primary contest to the centrist Christian Democratic Party's presidential candidate, Senate President Yasna Provoste. And then on the right, the presidential primary for the coalition representing Chile's conventional conservative parties, Chile Vamos. That primary was won by Sebastián Sichel, an independent member of Piñera's conservative administration and a former Christian Democrat. Sichel defeated a more conservative mayor named Joaquín Lavín of the Unión Democrata Independiente, or ULI, the Independent Democratic Union Party. That primary victory from Sichel potentially opens up some space for a new far-right Pinochetista party, the Partido Republicano, founded by José Antonio Cast in 2019. Cast and his Republicanos, rejecting Piñera as a sellout to the left, represent the militant edge of a rejuvenated far-right powered by anti-communism, racist opposition to the Mapuche indigenous peoples' fight for their land, anti-feminism, and openly dictatorship nostalgic conservatism. Camila and Aldo agree on a lot, but they disagree about Boric, the left's presidential candidate, about whom Camila is rather skeptical. They also disagree about whether neoliberalism is in its death throes, as Camila argues, or whether it is resilient and, if the constituent process fails to achieve a legitimate resolution to Chile's crisis, whether neoliberalism might form an alliance with an invigorated far right, which is what Aldo worries might happen. Another point of disagreement you will notice is that while Camila emphasizes the popular power being organized in local assemblies and cabildos, or councils, Aldo worries that the disorganization of the left perpetrated by neoliberalism and the dictatorship will leave the left in a weak position to win power and govern. I will also post links to a few articles by my guests and by others on Chile in the show notes. In other news, my July and August semi-sabbatical is coming to an end, and we are returning to weekly episodes the first full week of September. And we do indeed have two upcoming shows related to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. First, in a couple weeks, Spencer Ackerman on his book, Reign of Terror, how the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. And then, the first week of October, I'll interview Tariq Ali on his forthcoming essay collection, The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold. Stay tuned. But before we get started, if you appreciate and depend upon what we do at The Dig, please support us with a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash If you're listening right now and have always been meaning to make a contribution and support The Dig, but you never get around to doing so, I know the feeling. But now is a great moment. Please hit pause for just a few minutes. Navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even $5 a month goes a long way. That's, That's how this works. All of those small individual contributions really do add up and make this show possible. If you contribute at least $10 a month or more, though, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a mug or a tote bag. We do not paywall any episodes, and so the main way we raise the money to keep the pod going is just to ask you to contribute. If you do depend on the dig for our in-depth analysis— then please know we truly depend on you for your support. Also, we recently set up a Discord for DIG patrons. Discords are basically online discussion forums for those of you who are not very online. We will also let anyone who can't afford to contribute join if you send us an email. Another big piece of news, we are starting a weekly email newsletter for patrons sometime in September. I'm hiring newsletter writers as we speak. The newsletters will also be freely available on our website, but the newsletter which I promise will be very very good. It will be sent directly to your email inbox only if you are a Dig patron. So please do take a moment and contribute. Become a Dig supporter now. We really do need and depend upon you. That's P A T R E O N. Dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Aldo Madariaga and Camila Vergara. Aldo Madariaga is a professor of political science at the Universidad Diego Portales, Chile, and associate researcher at the Center for Social Conflict and Cohesion Studies. He is the author of Neoliberal Resilience, Lessons in Democracy and Development from Latin America and Eastern Europe. Camila Vergara is a critical legal theorist, historian, and journalist from Chile, currently researching the relation between inequality, corruption, domination, and the law as a fellow at the University of Cambridge. She is the author of Systemic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Republic, and República Plebia, Guía Practica para Constituir el Poder Popular. Aldo Madariaga and Camila Vergara, welcome to the dig. Thank you. Thank you. On October 18th, 2019, Chile's protest movement began in Santiago and embraced the slogan, it's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. What did that slogan mean, and how did resistance to a subway fare hike explode into this absolutely monumental revolt now known? as the estallido social, or social explosion?
1: So this uh, 30 pesos um, is 30 years, really, what what was going on in Chile as a, a neoliberal pressure cooker uh, that has been... Uh, getting steam uh, every year with uh, debt and precarious social services, uh, a population that has been oppressed for so many years, trying to uh, endure in order to democracy to come. You know, uh, this, uh, the slogan of the transition was that democracy will come and, and happiness will come. Well, it never came. And even if it was only 30 pesos, which is really cents, it added for the uh, working class uh, families. So uh, we saw uh, what you just have called the estallido social, the social outburst, which which is really a very hegemonic way of talking about it. It was the media, the oligarchic media, uh, which labeled uh, this uh, popular uprising as an estallido, an outburst. And we need to know, basically, that things uh, burst, but people rise up. So it was uh, seen from the top down as an outburst uh, that has no direction, cannot be protected and has no agent. However, the people in Chile are very much a political agent right now, and they rose up in order to uh, change their reality after 30 years of transition to democracy that never came.
0: Aldo?
2: yeah I think it really has to do with the accumulation of things and and you know the 30 pesos was just one in a series of you know in, in those weeks, in a series of interventions by by government officials in this case that um, reflected the stark differences in realities that they experienced from ordinary people. so just to name one that came before that. so there was a rise in prices in of food. Right, so so Chile is praised for having very low inflation, but food product inflation is relatively high, and fuel, uh, which is very much uh, hurting ordinary people, and the minister of the of, of, of the treasury was saying, look, we have hikes in all these you know food-related products, but then we have reductions in prices of other products like flowers. So maybe this is a time to become romantic and start buying flowers, something like this, like very banal type of things and, and very detached from, from the lives of ordinary people. And these were going over and over, you know, in, in the context of a right-wing government, uh, uh, taking back rights, taking back the few gained social policy expansions of the, of the previous government, still very limited, uh, but, but important in themselves and this adds up to you know 30 years right and more so and i think this this also has to do with this new generation so these students not recognizing themselves as part of this 30 years as as you know as free to rebel against that and and i think this this uh, everybody got con- there was a contagion wave uh, in terms of you know saying why should i have to stand this right But they started, so they they ignited the spark, but it got quickly. There was a contagious uh, uh, with other people because, you know, the feeling was was very much um, common.
0: For a decade and a half prior to October 2019, public education, feminism, pensions, these were all key issues for mass social mobilization in Chile. From high school students, Los Pinguinos in 2006, university students in 2011, protests against the privatized retirement system with the Nomas AFP movement to just the absolutely enormous protests organized by Chile's feminist movement. How did this cycle of social movement struggle emerge and build up around the issues that it did over the kind of decade and a half prior to October 2019? And what role did did those particular struggles play in laying the groundwork for the giant general system shaking protests that followed
1: i think the the cycle of contention that started in 2006 basically built up to uh, the uprising that happened in october and we can need to understand that specific cycle of contention in relation to the previous years of the transition to democracy in which the system was very precarious we need to remember that pinochet was the chief of the arm forces in Chile and then became senator for life with impunity, immunity, yeah? And people were very uh, worried about protesting a system that they saw as precarious because they uh, thought they could go back to dictatorship. And then when this authoritarian enclave started to um, give way uh, and we had uh, the first really socialist president, and I don't count uh, President de Lagos as a really a socialist. Uh, he privatized, you know, half of the things that uh, were supposed to be uh, public and the only things that were left for privatizing. So we had a more uh, left wing, I would say, almost populist candidate, uh, Michel Bachelet, who appealed to the precarious masses. And then people started protesting because uh, it was safe in a way to demonstrate your discontent about the system. And it started in education because education was one of the things that was um, made precarious during the dictatorship. There was uh, privatization. There was the voucher system, which was basically tried in Chile and in a laboratory kind of a way and uh, made public education only for the very poor. It, it basically very deficient. And this form of education was kept in the constitution as an organic law that needed a supermajority in order to be changed. So even though the minister of education could change things uh, in the kind of uh, on the on the letter and kind of have some uh, reform here and there at the end, the system of uh, neoliberal education, if you will, a semi-private, semi-public with voucher system, uh, was uh, constitutionally tied. And then the protest started because they thought that they needed to change the system, not only this, and they protested against this organic law of uh, the constitution that is in in the it has constitutional uh, protection. And then basically all the other demands started to gather and and uh, finally crystallize in what we have today, which is a constituent process in which for the first time the Chileans are trying to change the rules of the game from a very oligarchical, anarchic system into a more popular one in which the people have the power to stop extractivism, to push for basic universal um, services and more rights. So uh, I think we need to understand this cycle of contention, not as isolated on something that just sprung up, but something that was latent and came in full force when uh, people f- felt more confidence, confident to protest against the system itself. Aldo? Yeah,
2: I think that's that that's true. Just to add that, I, I think it was building up I mean I remember in, in, in my days at the university, even you know, left wing um, leaders were very much playing self restraint because you didn't know what the limits were. And you thought the limits were there I mean by uh, established in the pack of the transition right and even though these were a bit more progressive you know these these student leaders, they still were very much concerned that this could lead to destabilizing you know the fragile political environment that we had and and little by little, new generations of of, of leaders started to pushing those those that frontier right and showing that a a, a different sort of, uh, the the extent of the possible. And and by extending that frontier, new leaders and new movements came and started, you know, uh, more protesters, uh, a wider protest in different cities. And this really started building up. I think what was really key in this is how people started building up this power from below when they realized that political parties that had been, as as a scholar named at at some point, the, the... the spine of of Chilean politics and society they realized that these weren't leading they weren't responding anymore to their to their uh, demands so they 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 had to tr- to figure out different ways of of showing their demands of of showing what they wanted and 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 this really started out as common experiences of precarity and how people started sort of gathering around this experience. So if you look at, for example, student movement, what, what is that? Debt. The inability to, go, to study, the, the, the inability to, to you know, uh, if you study, you get indebted. And if you, if, if you don't have money, you cannot study. So that experience of vulnerability and, and of precarity, the experience in territories, for example, of massive uh, uh, pollution, uh, what is so called now um, zonas de sacrificio. So, massive pollution in certain uh, regions and certain territories, and people start sharing these feelings, this experience of precarity, and start rising up against. Same with women, right? Same with all the different sort of small uh, movements that started showing these new repertoires of action. They start building up and say, look, hey, Maybe we're on the same boat, right? Uh, and and this is how we get to the, those massive protests of the 2010s.
0: Concretely, how was it that the economic and social reality of Chile's model, things like incredibly long work hours and heavy indebtedness, I mean, thinking about this protest movement starting over subway fare hikes, I'm thinking about what it's like being on the Santiago Metro during rush hour, where you're just painfully packed in, like sardines after waiting for 7, 8, 10 trains to pass before you can even get on, this being experienced by people who work some of the longest work weeks, I believe, in the world at some of the highest levels of indebtedness. How did that reality shape the lives of working-class, poor, even middle-class Chileans? And then how did that lived experience of striving but failing to live the neoliberal dream, this contradiction, how did that contradiction between Chile's mythic so-called miracle and people's lived Chilean reality shape the mass protest movement that emerged.
1: I think what you say uh, about the long hours and how uh, the commute is, th- this is the lived experience of uh, the majority of people that are working class in Santiago. I think the these protests are not only against a system that is uh, neoliberal and uh, puts people in a pre- precarious position, but also against centralism in the last 30 years, uh, there has been a, a mig- migration from the different regions into Santiago, which has a capital that today has more than 6 million people. And basically uh, we are in very spread out and uh, the, land, the rent is incredibly high. Uh, we have the the most expensive living conditions, basically material conditions you need to pay for rent and, and, and services. We have that that is comparable to Europe, but we have have uh, the wages of you know Latin America and this is a huge problem. We see that uh, in in a poor uh, or a working class neighborhood people live almost uh, 17 years less, than people in in affluent zip codes, and this is uh, something that is the, the contrast in Santiago, the capital, uh, is very stark, and you see it when you go to the financial district, what we call San Hatton, because it's very similar to downtown uh, New York, in which there's you know skyscrapers. However, you just you know walk through the river, uh, just you know one mile, and you see that there are encampments in uh, alongside the river, people People living in cardboard boxes. Today we have the same number of encampments with people living with no uh, running water or electricity than when we transition to democracy. So just two years before going into democracy, we had uh, around 900 encampments throughout Chile. We are in that same level today, which uh, basically is uh, an, a wake-up call for uh, the elites who only see the Sanhattan part of it, only see the all the development that has allowed for uh, the rich to live in a very a first world reality while leaving everybody else behind and expecting, as you say, this idea of an unfulfilled myth. That uh, a myth of you know accessibility that at the end was fueled by debt, by crushing debt. And I here I want to make a parallel with the United States because uh, I think we li- we are experiencing very similar uh, trajectories. The consumerism, uh, the idea that we are define ourselves uh, by, by what we have and what we can acquire. Uh, there was access to education, but that education came with a price tag that was crushing and unbearable. Same as we are experiencing in in the United States, so uh, I think uh, the myth uh, just came uh, was uh, came into flames, was uh, basically burst into flames in that October. Uh, something that uh, that was uh, building up and can only be reckoned with when you see both parts of the so-called development. One is luxury and waste and evasion and and the trickle up economics, and the other is this part of Chile that just was left behind and uh, left only to access services that are very basic through debt.
0: Aldo?
2: Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with what Camila was saying. I would call uh, the, exhaust, the exhaustion of the promise, of the neoliberal promise. I mean, at some point, neoliberalism had that. I mean, the preachers of neoliberalism had that. You know, with this new system, you will have access to goods to new goods you'll be able to you you won't have to go to the to that precarious public school that is falling apart you will be able to choose like you know like the rich do a school with a with a name in english with a with a different uniform you'll be able to buy new products you'll be able to travel like like the rich used to do but now you'll be able to do that all through debt right and that was the that was the promise uh, and through the 1990s, the period of, of relatively rapid growth and, 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 which is uh, the period that is then uh, cited when, when, when they uh, tell about the, the myth, right? The, the miracle was the period in which this expectation in, in a way was, was being fulfilled. You know, people have had jobs, they could repay their debts. And so uh, ever growing debt could afford them, you know, uh, a new house, a new car, going abroad for vacation, having their children in these new schools with English names, you know. So it's it was fulfilling the expectation uh, after uh, the first crisis, uh, after this period of, of, of growth was was the Asian crisis and, and, and it's. Um, uh, effects on, on Latin America and Chile in particular, after that it becomes clear that this ex- expectation gets exhausted that this was the, the the best that you can get with with this system, and the children of those parents working hard to pay their debts start realizing that this doesn 't get you anywhere and and it is these children that start rebelling against the system afterwards when they have to go to to the university and they see their parents working their uh, their whole lives to repay debt, to remain in debt their whole lives. right? there's a, there's a nice book called uh, "Life in Debt," and the parallel with the U.S. is precisely that. I mean, it's the relation with salaries. I mean, debt is a way to 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 replace the salary that you're not getting from your work. But but it's even more uh, Machiavellian, or or you know, worse than that, because it's bringing a salary, the wage that you will earn in the future. Bringing it to the present, right? Which means that you will never get out of
0: this. And yet to keep going, you have to be committed to the idea that you can. It brings to mind the the recently deceased Lauren Berlant's idea of of cruel optimism, a system powered on that.
2: Absolutely. Basically, sorry, just to to finish the idea. So basically, those parents were working 24-7 because they had to, right? And they didn't even have the time to think that what they were doing, it, w- it, was, it was outrageous, right?
0: Aldo, what, what was or what has been the transition as a regime? And to what extent did the regime of the transition, at least until recent years, to what degree did what we've been talking about add up to ideologically legitimated basis of support Amongst Chilean people across the political spectrum and from various classes, was there a consensus or hegemony of sorts at work?
2: I think this is this is a question about interpretation of, of what happened. I think that at some point the the political elites that led the transition. I mean, at some point they thought that they they they, they had the room to change things. I mean, when, when, when you look at the, their discourses and their, you know, even government programs in the late 1980s uh, of the Concertación, they were relatively or moderately progressive programs, government programs. They realize they have constraints. They realize that they, they can do certain things. And they start, you know, trying to do improvements on the margins of, of this neoliberal system. At some point, they, they get comfortable with that. They buy the, 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 the expectation, the myth, and they say, look, you know, it's not as bad. Uh, we can do certain things on the, margin, on the margins and we have this middle class, we have, you know, growing employment at, at that point, growing salaries, and, and we have debt and people can do all of these things. And they buy that myth. And I think there's growing, uh, this solidifies uh, among the elite, a uh, very strong discourse of legitimation of those years. Emerges, and we see it even today. I mean, it's just uh, amazing how even today you see this discourse over and over in those elites that were in charge of the transition. But it's like they hadn't witnessed what has happened in the last couple of years, which has transformed completely the the political landscape, right? And so, just to finish, there was this this growing detachment from that discourse of legitimization of. Of you know, self-complacency with what was going on, with that of the ordinary people, that led to you know the 30 peasants uh, uh, thing, you know?
1: If I may answer that question of hegemony, so Marx famously says that basically the the rules uh, of the ruling class become the rules of society through the channels uh, that they use today is the media. In addition to that, I think that in Chile, in addition to the right-wing, you know, coalitions and and, and, um, companies owning all the media and basically having propaganda in favor of, you know, this system, we also had an agreement among elites. So we had the, the Socialist Party, we had the Christian Democrats, we had all the kind of instrumental parties that were born to play the democratic game after the transition, pacting, agreeing with Pinochet just before the uh, referendum saying after the referendum sorry after winning you know there was a series of meetings between the dictatorship government and the civilians who were aspiring to become the leaders in the new democracy and one of the things that they agreed on was not to call a constituent assembly and to basically work with the constitution that was that emerged in the dictatorship and was rem- Produced then in the transition to democracy. So basically, were the left wing elites that uh, were the opposition to the military dictatorship who agreed on non changing the system? So then you have a series of concertacion governments. Uh, one of them, uh, imagine in '99 with uh, Ricardo Lagos.
0: Concertacion being the center left coalition.
1: Yes, the center left coalition uh, of the Christian Democrats who actually. Um, supported the coup d'etat in 33, 73. Yeah. And then packed the, it, they
0: packed it their way into the dictatorship and packed their way
1: out. <laughs> out. And the left, the socialists, agreed with them because they wanted to play the democratic game. And they was was their generation who were supposed to govern now. So they will govern at all costs. So they made this pact. Uh, even though uh, the dictatorship had lost the referendum, even though there were mobilizations on the street and people wanted full democracy. So from this day on, we had three consecutive concertacion governments which basically uh, abide by the system and told the Chilean people that the reforms that they wanted and the things that they needed could not be done. That basically uh, the system was uh, created in a way in which economic growth was the new religion. And that investment in this, uh, the, oh, Chile is one of the most, I think is the most open demo, uh, economic system in the world with a flat rate, you know, uh, tariffs from uh, the dictatorship on, right? So we are completely open, very small country. So the ideology was, if we do anything, if we start tweaking the system and we start redistributing property and we start doing all these reforms, then invest- investment will not come and we will be poor And all this kind of neoliberal myth will not be accomplished. So basically you need to just obey and we need to just uh, try to reform around the edges. And it was... Uh, To such an extent that Ricardo Lagos, who famously pointed in national television with his finger to the dictator and and interpolated him, and we uh, remember that as the El Dedo de Lagos, and with this brave man, okay, he basically allowed for uh, constitutional reforms to take care of the authoritarian enclaves, uh, the most egregious ones, to eliminate them, and then he signed. his name, next to Pinochet's name, uh, to create the Pinochet-Lagos constitution. So basically, he signed his own name, authorized this neoliberal order to keep going.
0: Well, let's talk more about the constitution, because the protest movement has changed a lot in Chile, obviously, but most concretely, by forcing the political class to establish a constituent assembly to rewrite the country's 1980 constitution, a constitution, as you were just discussing, a constitution written and implemented under the dictatorship. Before we get to the constituent assembly, let's talk about the current constitution that the constituent assembly is going to be replacing. What's in the constitution, and how did Pinochet and his regime use it to ensure that the dictatorship's politics would continue to fundamentally shape Chile after the transition began in 1990.
1: I think there are two sides to the constitution. So um, one of, and here there is this um, relation with James Buchanan and, you know, the Chicago School and this, you know, American pundit basically advise uh, the Chilean civico-military dictatorship to constitutionalize its model, basically, to protect it. Because they knew that at some point democracy was going to come and therefore you needed to guard the system against democracy, against the majority. So I think Aldo can talk more about, you know, how uh, neoliberalism came about and then uh, the constitution just prevented further change. This is how you do it, right? First you privatize, you get rid of all, you know, the things that, uh, the social things, you know, the the, the uh, social services and other things that the state gives to the people. And then you freeze that uh, scenario through law. And this is uh, basically how it was done. And then a lot of mechanisms were created. Uh, for democracy to be protected. So supermajorities, um, a system of electoral system that would give uh, over-representation to the minority, which was calculated that was going to be the right-wing minority. So therefore, it would protect uh, uh, further changes. Everything has to be decided by a supermajority quorum, right? So there are many things that are um, put in place in the constitution in order to preserve the material scenario that they created through uh, privatization. Through uh, the deregulation, in order that not to be changed when the democracy came about, and then the majority could push for that reform.
0: Aldo,
2: I think what should be stressed here is this, is the strong connection between uh, neoliberalism as a, as a development model, but more you know more than that, it's a political project. It's the political project of freeing the economic elites uh, from the tethers from the power from the constraints of democratic politics, of of representative politics. And this happened not just in Chile, but in other parts of the world. I've written about that. But in Chile, what happened is that because of the context of the dictatorship, of the bloody dictatorship that we had, you know, uh, then this project could be carried forward without much resistance. And so the ability, of, of these elites constrained to, to sort of produce a mimic of democracy that would just be able, I mean, democracy by 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 principle is, you know, the, the representation of the people and the ability of the, if you want, the, the political system to represent different, different demands, right? So the mimic of democracy that they created implied that this could only represent certain types of demands, that only certain types of claims would pass through, that only certain types of of even of of sentiments uh, of political you know ideas, ideologies could be represented in the system. And this had I mean clear consequences for what happened uh, afterwards in terms of the lack of responsiveness of the political system to the growing demands uh, of the people. Uh, the detachment of the of the political class, let's call it that, that way, from those demands, because the system wouldn't allow these demands to be represented because of how it was constructed. And importantly, also, we may talk about this later uh, in more detail, also a lack of legitimacy of politics in general and of democratic politics, the way it was played in Chile among the people. So detachment from, from voting, detachment from, from, from political parties, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a growing disrespect, lack of consideration to the role that political parties may play in democracy, not just those parties that were you know, in ge- in, in, uh, during the transition. This has translated today into a generalized uh, uh, um, disregard, lack of trust, with politics in general, with institutionalized politics, and also with parties that I think threatens also, and, and it's, a, it's, it's a, a very interesting point to discuss, uh, what happens today, what happens after the, the, constitu- the new constitution.
0: Yeah, and I want to get to that in more, de- more detail later. Camila?
1: Something I forgot to say, uh, that is this is not only an uh, economic project, it's also a moral project. It, we need to remember that uh, the the people that uh, were in the military dictatorship, the, the civic part of the military dictatorship, were not only neoliberal Chicago boys, were also Opus Dei, the ultra-conservative uh, religious uh, group that basically wants to freeze a very a traditional way of understanding society in which women are inherently subordinate so um, this would be kind of the wet dream of the Republicans in, in, in the US, but basically the, um, the life of the unborn was constitutionally protected, uh, is still constitutionally protected in Chile, even though there was, you know, uh, abortion was allowed or decriminalized, at least in, you know, if you're raped or if your life is in danger. Okay. But uh, basically the life of the unborn was uh, cons- uh, constitutionalized, was uh, protected by the constitution. And also, there was no gender perspective in terms of what the market uh, can do to oppress women more. For example, uh, health insurance. Everybody's in debt because of health insurance, the same as in the US. However, uh, in Chile, women have to pay three times more for their health insurance. This recently changed, but for most of my adult life, I had to pay three times more than my, my peers that are male because we are in a fertile years. So basically this is like the cost is always passed to the consumers. You know, childcare was never recognized as, you know, a form of labor. So basically women are always the most oppressed. And this system, this neoliberal constitution was also an ultra conservative one that, that, uh, that made the feminist movement so strong now and kind of uh, leading the way for systemic change.
0: Being a woman is the uh, biggest pre-existing condition of all. <laughs> this is not
2: by chance, I was going to say. I mean, this uh, extreme social conservatism, uh, we have now more and more investigations into how neoliberals and and, and this, for example, Virginia neoliberals, so, so the, the more extreme of, of them, Uh, were very much into social conservatism and, and, you know, they were feeding this type of ideologies in the US too. So I think this goes together.
1: Yes, and also, and I think we need to remember that Chilean fascism has uh, a lot to do with uh, Francoism, uh, that we have a direct line to Spain and the way that fascism was constructed in Spain in a very morally conservative way. So, we have basically a history of uh, Franco-inspired fascism that uh, was developed in Chile, and also we have the newer version of neocons coming from the U.S., and we see that in the uh, marches and mobilizations against the process, What we call the the marchas del rechazo. There were uh, Confederate flags uh, uh, next to basically uh, the symbols of the Chilean fascist movements. So there is kind of a a double, you know, uh, influence from Spanish uh, moral conservatism and the neocon version of the U.S.
0: Two notes for listeners before we move on on the relationship between neoliberalism and social conservatism. Definitely. Check out Melinda Cooper's work and my interview with her from a few years back. It's one of the most remarkable books I've ever read, Family Values. And my friend, uh, the historian Kirsten Weld, is working on a book project right now, specifically on the relationship between Francoism and Latin America, which I'm very much looking forward to reading.
1: And a side note, maybe it's not for the program, but, you know, let me see, let me say that uh, it's incredible how the symbols, I've been tracking the symbols of fascism uh, appearing in many protests, and there is a flag of Hispanity wow. that represents a cross, a Red Cross with kind of spikes, and it represents the colonial power of Spain and how kind of the mestizo and white population in Latin America want to be Hispanic. And that has been popping up in Ecuador, in Bolivia, and now in Chile in the protest against plurinationalism, which is something that is here to stay, I would say.
0: Well, I anticipate that we could see it in the Rio Grande Valley here in the United States any, any day now, <laughs> unfortunately. Aldo, you mentioned that your work is not just on Chile, but on, on neoliberalism more generally. And Chile is obviously very often, in more books than I can recount, referenced in global histories of neoliberalism. What what do we learn about global neoliberalism by focusing on the Chilean model and Chilean history?
2: I think what, what we said is very important. Uh, the fact that neoliberalism is more than just a set of policies trying to build markets instead of where, where there were uh states before that, right? Trying to reduce the sort of the power of the states to impose markets and market discipline. I think it, it it's much more than that. It's a political project to change how societies work. And and it's not just a way of making the economy more efficient. It's a way of making the economy work for certain strata of the population, right? The rich. It's about economic liberty for the rich, for the for those who have property. But, you know, it's also a way of thinking how we engineer society, how we engineer Politics, the polity, right? How we change power in society so that we won't be constrained by anyone so that no one will tell us what amount of taxes we have to pay, whether we need to pay uh, uh, tariffs, whether we need to abide by, you know, labor regulations, environmental regulations, right? So in a way, it's a much more sophisticated thought that just, you know, thinking about how to make the economy work. It's really how to allow uh, um, those with property do whatever they want without restraint. You can see this project in many other parts of the world. Uh, I, I studied it in Eastern Europe, but everywhere where you see a, a, a strong neoliberal drive and, and, and you know push, you will see this as a project of societal engineering, not just of changing the economy. Yeah.
1: I completely agree with you. Um, I think we need to remember that of James Buchanan and this like radical individualism, the idea of remaking society for the individual to have all the power to do whatever they want to do in this regard of the the inequality that exists. Because today, the only people who who can enjoy their rights are the rich and who have the resources to actually enjoy them. All the rest have their rights only formally, you know, we are all equal just in paper. Uh, what a neoliberalism does, does in terms of like theory, I would say, is to radicalize the is this liberal ideology of the individual and a personal responsibility. And actually, Buchanan went in kind of a tour for in Eastern Europe and Europe and then Latin America, and he was very influential behind the scenes. And there's very little research on it. But I think if you start digging, you will see that this ideology of radical individualism and a personal responsibility was being being spread out by these intellectuals.
0: Before we move on to present-day Chilean politics, I want to look back to the socialist-led government that was toppled by Pinochet's coup. How do today's movements compare to the popular movements that brought Salvador Allende to power in 1970? In recent decades, of course, the left in the U.S. and Europe, and probably elsewhere, ha- has confronted and debated The decline of the traditional working class and labor unions and the rise of new social movements and what that means for economics and politics and for socialism and for social democracy. How has that history and and those debates, how how has that played out in Chile?
1: There's many uh, questions in your question, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, there is a very different scenario between the 70s and now. Uh, the first thing that I would say is that in the 70s and in and, and this period of enlargement of you know democracy in which more people were participating, there was a belief that democracy could actually pan out. That you can actually select a precedent that will bring, you know, equality and freedom for all. You know, there was a belief that the representative democracy worked. This has radically changed. Uh, in the transition to democracy, as I said before, there was a belief in the system, a system that could not be criticized from inside because it was very precarious. The political parties that were supposed to be left, they were actually neoliberal, you know, so where they're not really left, they were just socialists in name. And people kept voting for them in uh, diminishing numbers, okay? Since in 89, there were 97% of the people um, that could vote registered to vote. And uh, there was a Um, the the law said that if you register to vote, then you were forced to vote. It was mandatory. So people were trapped in a system uh, legitimizing the way democracy worked. So what happened is that people were forced to vote, so the turnout was always kind of like high in a way, but uh, people were not registering to vote. So new registrations just were like floored. Nobody was registering. So today, we have reached like a peak of that in the sense that people just stopped believing in representative. Democracy altogether. They don't believe that selecting a candidate that would be better or, you know, the leader of the people will, will actually change anything. So the socialist party that um, supported Allende uh, in three times actually he ran for, for office and then he got a, a relative majority with the support of the of the party. Today is something that uh, cannot be translated in a way. There's no party that could uh, galvanize a majority today because part. the party system has been delegitimized. Even the vote has been delegitimized. 50% of people in age to vote. So uh, we need to, uh, I need to uh, say this, that after being mandatory uh, voting, uh, if you registered, political scientists and all politicians were very worried that people were not registering to vote. So they liberated the vote. So now everybody can vote is voluntary and you're automatically registered. Okay. Despite that, uh, for the plebiscite of initiating the constituent process, only half of the people went to vote. And then when people were supposed to select the representatives to the convention, only 43% of the people voted. And this is not only about the pandemic, this is a, a tendency that uh, is uh, in accordance with the voting patterns of before the pandemic. So this is not pandemic related in a way. This is something that Chileans are uh, disillusioned with the system itself and therefore there is an opening for real popular power because the popular power of Allende was simply uh, his party and there was organized civil society but there was no real connection uh, institutional connection between the organized working classes and the executive actually there were you know there was friction because the uh, Allende was more by the book he wanted to respect the rules of the game while the people wanted power real power uh, immediately Uh, and they started occupying land and started kind of radicalizing that government. Today, uh, people are radicalized already and they are pushing for an active participation in the constituent process uh, well beyond any party or any list. And we can talk about the new emerging pseudo parties like the Lista del Pueblo, which is kind of this list that aggregated independence uh, to run for the convention, which today is in complete collapse and shambles because basically they wanted to be a party and wanted to run a candidate and be a party without being a party. And people already are sick of that. So immediately they saw that this list was um, playing the game of the parties and uh, party machinery. And uh, immediately the support for that list and for their candidates started to collapse.
2: So to to add to what Camila was just saying, I think there are maybe two two axes or or two features of of the political landscape that have changed dramatically since Allende was in in power. Uh, the first is how institutionalized politics is played out, okay, and and how institutionalized politics sort of with all the ups and downs and, and what Camila was saying the the difficulty of really channeling popular power into that institutionalized platforms, right? Through parties, into government programs, into particular policies. Uh, In the 1970s, Allende sort of showed and embodied both the difficulties of doing that in a country with many things to fix, but at the same time, the, the, the great potential for that, the great potential of democracy, of being able to, you know, Vote for a leftist candidate like Allende that could bring in a, a, a government program with radically, radically changing the structures of this country, and he managed for some years after after he was dramatically uh, kicked out and, and paid with his life for, for this you know involvement uh, you know against the elites. but basically democracy represented that possibility after Pinochet's constitution. This is not anymore the case because of the mimic of democracy that happened afterwards. And I was thinking just about what democracy means now. Democracy means freedom to to vote. It's freedom to choose, you know, but it doesn't matter what the outcome is. You know, it doesn't matter whether the actual preferences or the actual alternatives are alternatives in themselves. I mean, they can be the same thing. But the fact that you can choose is like we were saying before with the schools, it doesn't matter whether the, the, the education is bullshit, is you know, is crap. It, what matters is that you can choose your school. It doesn't matter if it's crap, but you can choose. It is the same with democracy. You know, it doesn't matter what the alternatives are. The, what matters is that you can choose. And this is what it's called democracy, you know, being going to vote. But then, you know, this changed dramatically. Institutionalized politics, democracy, cannot be what it was before. The domain of the possible, The domain of representativeness, okay? So this is one thing. And the other thing that connects very much, I think the two connect with with the issue of of the constituent assembly now, or the convention. The second thing is organization. The relationship between institutionalized politics and organization, organized power. What you had then was organized civil society, workers' movements, uh, what you call pobladores. So, uh, uh, movements of, of dwellers, right? Of, of shanty towns that were organized and were sort of connected in different ways to parties, which were then, you know, transmitting those demands into an inst- institutionalized platform. You don't have organization anymore. And this also relates directly to the uh, uh, dictatorship. Because one of the projects of, of, of that, you know, neoliberal project that, that we uh, set was, you know, to punish organized power, to punish parties or the parties that that dare to try to organize masses, to punish uh, labor unions, to punish all sorts of organized power. So you'd only have individuals voting, going to the polls and voting, right? Uh, and so civil society now started from the grassroots, as you were saying, you know, just building up from common problems and trying to do something about them. But what, what you see now, and this is so different in Chile than in other parts of, of even Latin America that are having uh, huge manifestations in these days. You don't see, I mean, it's it's basically it's very much a grassroots, unorganized type of demonstrations. You don't see parties there. You, you see different small organizations gathering, but there's no sort of Direction. I mean, the direction is the common set of feelings and experiences, but you don't see a direction. You don't see an organization. The ones that were behind some of the protests didn't even get into the, to the Constituent Assembly, the Nomas AFP. All the, the leaders or, uh, related to the more organized types of movements were not even elected to the Constituent Assembly. So organization is really small groups related to particular territories that rally around certain leaders, but very much, you know, small groups, not those type of organizations that can really channel these demands into institutionalized politics.
0: Let's turn to the Constituent Assembly more directly now. Who was elected and what did that election reveal about the position of the established political class? Camila, you wrote in the New Left Review's Sidecar blog that it had been predicted that that the, quote, convention would be monopolized by party politics because established parties were expected to win so many seats. And also because there was a rule requiring a two third supermajority to approve articles and the, the new constitution as a whole. What did the political establishment want to happen with the constituent assembly and what has in fact happened so far?
1: So, in the months prior to the elections for the Constituent Convention, the all the media and all the polls, and there were no polls that they said anything different, uh, said that basically the right wing coalition, which has had kind of a historic, you know, electoral support of around a third pinochet had like 42 43 strong okay percent of the vote at some point uh, or at least the, of the support of the people and so they projected that uh this would kind of uh translate into having at least a third of the seats in the convention and this was set and the other seats were going to be uh distributed uh to the concertacion and other established parties However, what happened is that the Chilean, the Chile Vamos, which is the um, right-wing coalition, didn't get the third, only got 25%. So uh, this immediately changed everything because when, as you said, uh, the pact between the leaders of the center-left coalitions and parties, you know, including uh, one is, um, um Boric, who is um, running for president. Actually, uh, they pacted uh, to initiate uh, this constituent process by imposing a two-third supermajority for approving every article of the new constitution, which would have would have given uh, the right-wing coalition a veto power. And this was the scenario just before the election. Immediately with the exit polls, this started to change. And uh, around 40% of the people elected to the convention were independents. And as Aldo was saying, today there's no, not much uh, like formal organization. However, that doesn't mean that there's no organization on the ground. It means that it's just not visible because 40% of the people elected managed to get there with the support of uh, cabildos, assemblies, movements, colectivos, you know, circles, uh, cooperatives, all these other more informal type of organization that is not connected nationally, is very local, managed to support these candidates. And all of them are um, uh, now um, pushing for giving a more active role to uh, the, the people on the ground and not just say, well, you selected us with this, you know, thousands votes and therefore we are going to select what's going to happen now and you just need to wait and vote in favor of the constitution when it's written. The majority of these leaders who are not from political parties, basically, they don't feel uh, entitled to just uh, write a constitution out of their conscience, basically, but they need to revert to their territories. They want to be mandated by their constituents and not be libertarians liberated uh, from them in the idea of the free mandate, that we vote for someone and we cannot uh, really manage or dictate what the people is, but that person is deciding. So today we have a, uh, a large part of independents sitting in uh, the convention. Some of them are from, you know, the center. Uh, they're uh, so-called progressives. Uh, and the minority is the people in traditional political parties. And this changed the whole scenario because now uh, the, one of the first um, decisions that they uh, took in the convention was to select rules of engagement. So uh, the uh, rule book for the convention, how their convention is going to operate and uh, the mechanisms and procedures inside. And they decided by more than a two-third majority to decide everything by a simple majority. So now the rules of engagement of the convention, not, even, not only internally, but also with the people and the territories will be decided by a simple majority. So if we have 40% of the people being independent and we, we count here, you know, um, the representatives of indigenous peoples who are already, you know, bound to be delegates basically of their uh, assemblies and of their um, nations are pushing for a more active participation that could really change the order uh, from a representative democracy that is liberal, that always gives the power to the representatives and just uh, gives a passive role of authorizing government to the people to a more uh, empowering kind of democracy in which the people have organization on the ground and have some kind of power that is binding on representative government. I think uh, this the result opened the door for change, and today we see it in the subcommissions and what is going on inside the convention in which which the right-wing coalition is marginal and is uh, pushed to a corner. And they really cannot do much more than sabotage through the media, uh, the convention and the whole process.
0: Aldo?
2: Camila, sorry, can I I just ask you something? Because there was a vote yesterday into the the sort of majority rule for passing uh, articles into the constitution. And that that sort of uh, respected the two-thirds majority that was established before also you know justifying it in terms of what you're saying that the 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 composition of the constituent assembly now or uh, convention is, is is very different from what it was before when the two-thirds uh, you know allowed basically a veto uh, so I'm not sure whether you're talking about that or another 50 percent sort of uh, th- threshold.
1: Yes, so basically the threshold of two thirds uh, for every article of the constitution was set by law as a constitutional reform, so that cannot be changed. However, there was an argument saying that basically they were bound by the two thirds for everything. And this was like the thesis of the right, right? So they said that basically the convention is autonomous and can um, self-determine. So they give their own rules in terms of their mechanisms and procedures, okay? However, as you say, this kind of balance of power has shifted. And there was a, a, it was put on the table the idea of the convention liberated, it, liberating itself from this two-thirds supermajority. Okay, and that was um, voted uh, against in a specific commission of uh, rules. Uh, for the for the convention, and uh, it was justified in a way that that um, this is the two third supermajority is not inherently bad in the sense that it's just a number, even though that number has been tied to other supermajorities that have prevented change in Chile, and uh, there were kind of weak arguments. It's an arbitrary, you know, two third. However, I see that you need the process to be legitimate for everyone, not only for the great majority of Chileans, but also to the twenty uh, percent that voted against the process, and they believe that the two-thirds is the threshold that was pacted. And if you go against it, it would be spurious and illegitimate. So now that you have a two-third, imagine that the first declaration that the convention passed was to interpolate Congress to liberate the the, uh, prisoners of the revolt. So basically, uh, lay the indulto to be, you know, to, um, to just um, get everybody out of jail and to demilitarize the Hualmapu, the this um, region of Chile in which uh, the Mapuche live. And we have been in during all our uh, democracy, uh, the media have been calling them terrorists and every government have been criminalizing them. So this was the first declaration and was passed by more than two thirds in the convention. So we, they have that kind of power, that kind of radical uh, changing power. So therefore now they're more comfortable with that two third uh, in order not to kind of bring a procedural uh, delegitim- to delegitimize, you know, the process through the undermining of the rules. However, I think the most important thing was not that but uh, that was voted down the mechanism of plebiscites uh, if that two-thirds threshold is not met. That is an important piece of information because many of the people that voted against that uh, measure in order to allow uh, regular folk to vote uh, if, you know, a measure doesn't reach the two-thirds, you know, to have the people some power, uh, those people were defending that before and now they voted against it. And we can talk more, more about, you know, why they did it. But this is something that is redefining the rules.
0: Just a, a note for listeners, Mapuches are the largest indigenous group in Chile. And while Mapu generally refers, if I have it correct, to their the traditional territories in the southern part of, of the country.
1: And they are, uh, have been labeled the Palestinians of Latin America because they live in an uh, apartheid kind of system, uh, the same as the Palestinians in Israel. Not that, you know, uh, pushing to the limit. But yes, they have been called terrorists and they are oppressed.
0: You've written a lot about the democratic processes of the constituent assembly, particularly concerned with what sort of role ordinary people outside of the assembly will play. How has that played out so far?
1: So um, in October 2019, people not only hit the streets, but also start organizing in public squares and people who were not really activists, but just, you know, regular folk. And we can say cog in the machine in terms of, you know, the hegemonic um, system. And that's why people um, labeled this uprising as El Despertar. Chile woke up. People that were caucusing the machine basically got together in public squares and started deliberating, making decisions, creating popular power from the ground up. And um, even though the um, constituent process was opened formally through an agreement uh, among elites, uh, actually in a you know, closed door agreement that was signed at like two in the morning, you know, in in, in a November night, the people believe that they wanted, they they express in uh, several opinion polls and uh, from that point until today, that they want to actively participate in the constituent process, not just electing representatives, but actually deciding on what needs to go in the constitution. Of course, the elites have, you know, not even cared about this. Uh, This has not being covered, all this organization happening on the ground is not being um, uh, visualized. It's not being exposed. It's not being communicated. However, it's happening. And um, today we have um, several organizations, and and we is reminiscence of the cordones industriales uh, during uh, the uh, UP government, and in you know before the seventies uh, of you know several unions or groups of people in 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 a in an area that actually actually Actually, get connected, coordinated in a cordón, in 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 just a line, basically uh, of uh, that of transfer of information and uh, aggregation of power. This is happening today with assemblies and cabildos. There are cordones de cabildos, there are coordinadoras de de cabildos. There are basically people coordinating on the ground, even though very precariously, and always punctured by you know the electoral cycle. We have been in a permanent electoral. Cycle uh, since more more than a uh, a year from now. Like I think since the plebiscite for the um, constituent process started, we have been having elections for mayor, for you know the representatives, for uh, in primaries, for the presidential election. So the people are always divided between gathering and kind of creating popular power in order to participate actively in the process, and the other kind of supporting candidates that could be uh, reform. And could be kind of changing the system from within. So there, are, there is an uh, energy that is divided. However, now when when doors are closed, uh, yesterday there was a vote on the uh, commission on on rules that voted against having uh, tiebreaker uh, plebiscites if. A measure doesn't, a proposal doesn't get the two-third majority in Congress, but it reaches an absolute majority. They, uh, they wanted to create, um, a procedure in which if that happens, it would go into a plebiscite so the people would decide. So that was voted down in one of the commissions because it was deemed impractical, because it is very difficult to kind of uh, create the scenario for a legal plebiscite and a secure procedure in very little time. And we have, we need to remember that the convention has nine months to uh, write this constitution and then has uh, three extra months if they cannot make it, but it's um, only 12 months. So the people want to participate now in this process and they cannot wait for the formal, you know, rules to keep in because the bureaucracy and and all the you know the dotting your eyes uh, is very difficult so people are organizing now and actually they has been uh, there has been an organization of the first congress of popular power uh in chile organized by this you know uh, uh, coordinating um organics organs uh, uh that are um, basically connecting this popular power through the internet uh, and this could not have been done without the pandemic which was kind of a put the mobilization uh, to a in a latent state stopped it because people could not go out to the street to protest and people just could only stay home and when they stayed home the local movements started connecting with other districts and other regions through zoom basically or jitsi or other you know platforms in the internet and people started organizing and connecting and now there's more connection than they we could have imagined without the internet and without the pandemic
0: what do you two make of that tension between representative and unmediated popular power because plebiscitary power does not always turn out to be the most democratic form of power?
2: I mean, one thing is that the, the convention will have to solve is, you know, this le- legitimacy issue which relates to what we have been talking about and um, distrust of politics. And I think the 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 election of these uh, independents that were not even I mean the clearest example of how unexpected this was was that the night of the election when when the uh, all the media channels were given the results they didn't even have the photos <laughs> of those of those candidates for showing in you know in the screens who had won you know you had just you know just empty boxes there. It was just outrageous, you know, and there were so many of them. And the thing was that, you know, people were voting for who they trusted and who they trusted was, was the, their close ally in the territory, right? In the local sort of politics of organizing against all these injustices that they have been going through. OK, and actually those people went up by, by not too many votes. I mean, the, the, the percentage of votes are relatively not, not too large. But because there were so many and because of the proportional system, they were able to push many, many uh, uh, candidates into the w- into seats. So really grassroots, small types of organizations uh, pushing their candidates. And basically, I mean, I, I think it's really important to understand this trust. They trusted them because they were close and, you know, and they need to go back to their communities because this is the bond that they have. The bond that they have is not because they voted for them. Is because they have a long-standing relationship, because they know each other, and that's why they vote. For them. And how this is solved, but how this is solved in the constituent assembly, this is one thing. Now, this is around, so if we think of Lista del Pueblo, which were this, this sort of anonymous people, you know, the, the black faces because they didn't have the, 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 the picture, this is around 16% of, of, the, of the constituents. Then there's another chunk of independence but more to the center center left of, of the politics right uh, spectrum and there are many people disenchanted with with formal politics with political parties but that are not voting for those gra- grassroots groups and are more sort of identified by the normal sort of go vote and vote for your candidate type of politics and sort of have fear also these are the sort of more accommodated middle classes have fear of those grassroots Processes of power uh, building, right, and you know taking away their sort of their privileges and, and so on. So there will be, and, and I think this type of votes, like 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 yesterday, on how to the two thirds issue or how to solve the issues that don't get the two thirds, and whether to go for plebiscites or other types of of uh, you know input from from society. I think you 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 get there the the difficulties. Of finding a middle ground between these two sort of groups in, in, in society that voted for the approval, that eighty percent of population that voted for the approval that are tired of their normal type of politics, but have different views of how the, 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 the future Chile should be one much more grassroots in the local territories, very organized you know and, and, and willing to participate, and another more detached more centrist, that also wanted to change the constitution, but maybe identified with a more normal type of, of, of politics. And, and the way this is solved will very much uh, uh, um, sort of uh, uh, mark the legitimacy of what comes out of the constitutional assembly.
0: Camila, what, what do you make of this tension between representative and the quest for a less mediated democracy? Is there a perfect reconciliation? of that tension that's ever possible, or is democracy in significant part the the conflict over how to manage that tension?
1: Thank you for that question, because that is exactly what my work is about. So um, I wrote this book, Systemic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Republic, which actually it was written for Chile. And I see this tension as something that can be resolved, but only if you give popular power the final say in the constitutional structure. So today we have this tension very in the open between a plebiscitarian kind of participation, okay, mechanisms that are top-down, that do not create power, and that are connected to an epistemic uh, understanding of democracy in which the people are inputs, raw inputs, in order to get better results, better results that are, you know, have no reference, outside reference. How do we know that they're better in a way? We just have popular input in it. And that is intention today with the more deliberative direct democracy that is being, you know, organized from below, which creates power, which um, and I think fulfills the um, democratic myth in a way. It, it wants to. It wants to uh, give power to the people because the people are sovereign. So today we have in the kind of regular media and you know and in social media people talking about sovereignty, about popular sovereignty, about about popular constituent power, a, a topic that was obscure even in academia. Okay, and today people are talking in, in, in public television and in radio shows, and kind of people abrogating for themselves the power to create a new system, and not only that, to actually rule not rule all the time, but have a power to resist the oppression, to push for uh, social change if it, ne- if it needs to. So I think from, from my own perspective, which I, I analyze, you know, the popular governments throughout history, from, you know, ancient Greece, through the uh, Roman Republic, to the Florentine Republic, to the English Republic, to today, uh, we see that our modern representative democracies are the only So called popular governments that do not have a popular institution. So the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, you know, the Florentine Republic, everywhere the common people voted for others to rule but also had their own institution to uh, veto laws that they didn't want to force uh, to initiate proposals they already they had like an institutional apparatus what marx would call the the organs of the people and this is what uh, i argue the left should strive for today, not only getting to government and then rule by decree through plebiscites, which do not create popular power, but only you know allow for the platform to be implemented, but actually create the, the institutional infrastructure for the people to gather and to have power over government in, in intermittent ways, basically in a, in a direct democracy that is not the people ruling themselves all the time, but really having the power to control those who are in power. And that would be a game changer And I think this is the beauty of this crisis, because it's not only a sociopolitical crisis, it's also a crisis of the system itself, of, you know, the promise of democracy that never came, that is never, that is not a reality anywhere, in a way, that we cannot really uh, control our representatives. I think this is a moment in which the institutions and the institution of voting, which is free and fair elections as the minimal definition of democracy, is being put into question. And therefore, we need to find legitimacy uh, outside of that, a new form of authority, which is popular authority. And this could prosper or it could, you know, um, be too incohate in order to take root. But I think the death of li- neoliberalism also means the death of uh, uh, representative democracy as we understand it. I'm Master Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash thedig.
0: This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash dig Jacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash dig Jacobin. B-I-T dot L Y dig Jacobin. All lowercase. Aldo, I want to more squarely focus on some issues that we keep repeatedly circling around. You wrote in a recent article for Jacobin, America Latina, and I'm reading my own translation from the Spanish here. Quote Despite positive results in the plebiscite for what have been called the transformative forces in the constituent election that followed, the high lack of confidence in traditional political institutions and organizations, including the Congress and parties across the entire political spectrum, along with the high levels of abstention fostered during the decades of neoliberal hegemony, have cast doubt on the new situation. In effect, the electoral debacle of the neoliberal right has moved in parallel with a more virulent rearticulation of neoliberalism hand-in-hand hand with the staunchest defenders of Pinochet's legacy. At the same time, the triumph of the anti-neoliberal left stands in contrast to the left's fragmentation and limited capacity to guide the social movement both within and outside of the assembly." If the constituent process doesn't manage to fulfill the expectations for deep transformation that it has generated, something that's not at all improbable given the complexities of the process, the situation could rapidly generate a new breeding ground for appeals to authority and order that would favor an alliance between neoliberals and populists. There is a lot there. So let's start by discussing the first part of this argument, the part about the right. Although you argue that neoliberalism's crisis doesn't necessarily mean that neoliberalism is in its death throes, but rather that it's moving in an even more dangerous direction. Why and how is that playing out in Chile?
2: I think you. Uh, it has to do with what we talked about uh, earlier in terms of neoliberalism being a political project and not just a set of economic policies favoring markets over states too often now because of the series of crises that that the world has experienced in the in the last decade pundits have, have seen that you know the role of the states has grown meaning you know neoliberalism goes down and you know they they had even said that neoliberalism uh, uh, is is nearly dead right uh, i think it's reconstructing itself and what you think when you when you when you think of neoliberalism in terms of a political project, you care less about the mix of market versus state, and you care more about how you know the continued project of constraining democracy goes on and, and liberating you know uh, the rich goes on. You know, and this going on, you know, in the, in the past, you know, they they included sort of liberal elites. With uh, cosmopolitan views, uh, investment—you know—international investment treaties and 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 you know international integration. Third way uh, sort of politicians. Now, neoliberals are trying to ally with with another set of groups, right? Uh, maybe representing more clearly their uh, contempt for representative democracy.
0: You're speaking of the Pinochista far-right Republicanos party? Exactly.
2: I'm, I'm talking about far-right, far-right uh, politicians everywhere in the world and including here in Chile. In Chile, the detachment of neoliberalism with this strong authoritarian version has never been such, you know. They have been always strongly linked and you see clearly in the discourse José Antonio Cast, the leader of Republicanos, the, the far-right party, defending the legacy of pinochet he just you know put put out there his his um, campaign for president and 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 the three the, the core principles are family sort of markets and 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 the individual i mean these three things go together he wants he and and, and the sort of order going back to the order of the of, of the pinochet dictatorship of or pre, or before the 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 awakening right and I think this is, this is dangerous, connecting to, to the other part of, of that paragraph. This is dangerous because it's, it's, it's looming there. It's, it's waiting for any uh, uh, sort of problem that the, the, the new constitution may have or the, new, or the process may have. They've been trying to uh, uh, sort of uh, reduce the legitimacy by going out in the media, speaking. Uh, so it, with every detail that comes out of the constituent, the constituent assembly, they mount a scandal, right? I mean, if they have to change sort of the uh, budget allocated to it because of, you know, increasing the budget for assistance to, to fit in the process, they say, oh, see, they're, they want more money, you know, out of uh, taxpayer pockets. So with every detail, they're out in the media trying to delitimize the process. If the, the rest of the, the constituents fall into this game of legitimizing the decisions taken taken in the Constituent Assembly, I think there is the danger that it will be these far-right uh, uh, groups that will take the, the shambles of this.
0: Camila?
1: If I can disagree very strongly to that uh, analysis... Um... I think uh, that neoliberalism and the politics behind it are cornered today. The same as a kind of, you know, a cornered animal gets very, very aggressive at the end and tries to kind of do whatever to save itself. Today, we see that the government is pushing extractivism to its limit, is privatizing whatever it can before, you know, the new constitution comes into um, power, basically the new new structure uh, comes into place. But I don't think that, uh, the far right, which, you know, is very, uh, loud. But it's not, it doesn't have the power to uh, establish itself as you know, a ruling coalition in, of any kind. They have been sabotaging. Uh, I see working with the territories and working with the people. I see that there is a, s- a strong skepticism of you know any kind of political power or machinery that will come and rule. So I think if neoliberalism is going to be undone, it needs to be from the ground up. We cannot uh, think about any kind of representative government going through the dismantling of such a system uh, with uh, by itself and without the backing of an organized uh, masses. I think what is more uh, difficult and uh, more concerning is uh, the hegemony that has been established in Chile and that basically all the reformists are also kind of buying into. First of all, calling it estallido, for example, instead of a popular uprising, or talking about, you know, sustainable mining, instead of understanding that mining itself cannot be done because we cannot... Do it sustainable, sustainably. Uh, that extractivism is something that needs to be eradicated. This is something very strongly felt in the territories, in the uh, that are backing the independent candidates. And I think that uh, today the people are strong enough to uh, put their uh, the their their priorities in the agenda and to really change the logic. I think uh, the neo fascist uh, Partido Republicano we cannot, should not uh, um, label it populist. This is all. going into the hegemony of demonizing popular movements. Uh, I have argued that this is a populist moment without a populist leader because are the people themselves the precarious, you know, masses who are fighting for changing the system even against the formal process. So nobody's saying we are done here, the convention is going to do their their thing or the we're going to select a president that's going to change the world. They don't think that, nobody does. The crisis is so deep uh, that as Aldo was saying across the board, in a way, Congress, executive, there's no institution that has more than 20% approval in Chile today. So uh, this is a major crisis that it will you know, uh, allow for neoliberalism to be undone from below, but it will never, I think, will, we cannot go back to neoliberals, it would be a coup d'etat.
2: I mean, I don't understand very well the disagreement, Camila. I, I, I know that you have a different vi- vision of what populism is, and and, and, and that's fine. I, but I don't see a strong disagreement with your with your idea that you know the undoing of neoliberalism needs strong organization from below. I I, I, I agree to that. But I think what we shouldn't miss is two things, uh, and, and not overinterpret some of the things that I am also very optimistic about. The first is that we're look what we're looking at when we look at the vote, the voting patterns, and, you know, this type of new grassroots organizations, is that we're looking probably just at 50% of the vote. We, this is an iceberg. We still don't see the missing part of the iceberg. That 50% that didn't even go to vote to say approve or reject, or that 60% that didn't go to cast a ballot for, for a constituent, 60% of the of the people. We don't see that. We have opinion polls, we know that they they don't work, they fail miserably. So we don't know. We may go to the territories and ask people as as you say Camila and we may we may get a picture of what they think, but we may say well, this may represent the 16-20% of, you know, the elected uh, uh, constituents in the Constituent Assembly now. We don't know whether those represent the 50% of hidden Population that don't go to vote. So we don't know how they, how they react and how they behave. This is the first thing. The second thing I think is institutions. We're talking over and over about the problem with institutions, the lack of trust, the lack of legitimacy of institutions. And this process is trying to replace that with a new set of institutions. (laughs) Right. So the solution. For the lack of, 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 you know, legitimacy of institutions is new institutions. So, how do we do, we do it? This is, this is a very uh, sort of weak and, you know, fragile process because institutions are not legitimate. And you have to make people believe that the new institutions will be because of the process, you know, because of how they will end up being, you know, in substantive terms, but also because of the process itself is should be seen as legitimate. But this is, it's also a process for people to believe this is the case. Yeah? Because right now, they're, they're not legitimate. The Congress is not legitimate. We don't know what will be after the, the, the new constitution, whether the Congress will have legitimacy or not, whether the president will have legitimacy or not. You know, So it, it, it's a very fragile thing. And, and final thing, the, those who vote for, for caste, who also was unexpectedly successful in the last election, And the constituents representing his his part of the of the political spectrum were enormously successful. The ones that got among the most voted ones were the most radical ones uh, within the right. And but he has uh, uh, this far right also has a very strong attachment in popular sectors related to the Protestant sort of version of, of of the Christianity. Who are very much against the liberal uh, social values, you know, and the liberal agenda in terms of values, and then see caste as the standard bearers of of the family values and the. Also. We have seen. I, I finish with this. We have seen in other parts of Latin America that these uh, people carry a huge weight in politics when they decide to enter politics. And they have elected far-right leaders in other countries of the, of, of the region, El Salvador, Bolsonaro, etc.
0: Evangelicals.
2: Exactly. So I think we, we, we should not over, over-interpret what we see from the iceberg. And we should be careful of trying to see what lies beneath it.
1: Yes, what I was disagreeing with is the power of this far right. I think what you say is correct in many other places, this is what happened. I'm not um, uh, saying that the evangelicals are not a very strong you know, force. However, they are very disciplined and they're already voting. I think um, they, as I said, a cornered animal that is, you know, uh, is going to uh, lose a fight, is going to do whatever it takes to uh, stay in power. And they have used the media. I imagine someone that has, I don't know, less than 6% of the vote is in all, you know, the news uh, and they're trying to broadcast. But I think we need to see the convention as a microcosmos of what the far right is doing and what it, what the power is within and how, you know, the other representatives are actually uh, disciplining them, disciplining them uh, in terms of uh, human rights and what is um, allowed to be said in terms of a hate speech, for example. So uh, th- what we didn't do as a country, which is kind of like reckon with the crimes and have like a social understanding of uh, the violation of human rights during the dictatorship and now since October 2019, the convention is doing. So the convention is taking care of that transition to democracy and that reckoning with human rights violations then and now that the society didn't do. So the far-right extremists that, as Aldo said, yes, they were first majorities within the extremists of the rights, yes, uh, they are being silenced from within. They're being um, um, they're being uh, disciplined. They're being uh, labeled as, you know, negative. Uh, negationists and um, going against human rights and spreading hatred. So they are actually drawing the rules now to uh, um, get them out of the convention, not in terms of uh, exile, but of uh, denying voice and vote or denying pay, for example, for those who transgress uh, hate speech. Uh, regulations. So I think that is the way that we are going. And uh, uh, yes, that was my disagreement of uh, the the weight of the far right. And um, yeah.
0: The constituent assembly is not the only big political event this year. We've touched on it a few times. But conservative billionaire Sebastián Piñera's presidential term is coming to an end. The election to replace him is this November. Recently, Gabriel Boric, a former student leader and member of the Chamber of Deputies, from the leftist party Convergencia Social. He recently defeated Communist Party mayor Daniel Hadway in the left-wing electoral coalition Apruebo Dignidad's presidential primary. And interestingly and significantly, this election, the communists left the center-left Nueva Mayoría coalition that they'd been a part of to be a part of this other left-wing coalition. Who are Boric and Hadway? And what does Boric's victory mean? Signal about the shape and trajectory of Chile's political party left, because after all, Hadaway, who I interviewed on the show in Spanish a while back, he was until recently the favorite to win the primary.
2: Yes, I. I mean, there, there are many interpretations to this. Hadaway was indeed the the person that was. I mean, many people thought that would would win this primary. He he has been basing his his image and in, and in, in, in his political image. Uh, from his uh, administration of this um, district of Santiago, Recoleta. a low middle class uh, district. And he has done many innovations in terms of, you know, putting the state, uh, uh, you know, the local, local municipality to solve many of the issues that the market didn't solve, you know, and to provide real solutions, you know, actual solutions to many of the most pressing problems, including health, education to, to the people. And came to be a, a very respected uh, political figure in that respect. I think in the, in, 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 it was a surprise that, that Boric uh, ended up winning. I think we can Boric, a former a student uh, movement leader, that came into the Congress once the, the, the former student leaders ran for Congress. This was the first time that sort of people from, from social movements got into Congress after a series of reforms that allowed them to, to, to enter. And in a way, after he has been in in, in in office as a deputy, he's he has been seen as somebody more accommodating, somebody more you know from the establishment. Congress, uh, we've said over and over, is deeply delegitimized, and he's a congressman. So in a way, he has and he has been he has had to negotiate with other political forces, and, and this has uh, sort of reduced his image in the in the in the left. Uh, so his his uh victory was a um, was a surprise. I think it has to do with the camp- has a lot to do with the campaign He ran a a more sort of positive campaign a more optimistic campaign in hallway in a way i think he he sort of uh, thought he was going to win and he didn 't put that much effort uh, he had He was seen at some point as somebody a bit more authoritarian a bit more not very nice responding you know aggressively and this sort of it was part of the campaign but also more moderate uh, members of the left voted for vorich probably because of uh, of of Jadwe and the image of the of, of being a communist which still uh, remains in large parts of, of the of, of of the electorate as you know you know the uh, for and you know in, in the days of 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 Allende, even though Allende was not communist but supported by the communists and so it's basically um, go ben, the image of Venezuela and, and, and this type of, of countries that, that is very effective in
0: Chilezuela. In, in
2: Chile for <laughs> yeah, Chile exactly. So one last thing. I I think one, one that is related to what I was uh, talking about uh, before, that we don't know how that 50% votes is that both hardware in a previous election for the um for the re- so the governor of the whole region of Santiago showed is that many think that after the vote for the Constituent Assembly and the and the good success of, of those independent candidates from the Lista del Pueblo, that that segment of, of the population voting for the left would show up to vote uh, for a leftist candidate. And I think this has not been the case both in that previous election for the governor of Santiago and for Jadwe. I think Jadwe expected much... Stronger support, and he was even doing many, uh, uh, you know, favorable favorable mentions to the Lista del Pueblo and the type of things that they care about. And they didn't go. I think in the end they didn't go to vote for him. Uh, you see this in the results uh, overall. And 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 I think this is another important question. I mean, those more organized probably go to vote, but this. A majority of people that still maybe would feel represented by type of left-wing politics and and you know what what Camila was saying about you know human rights and but somehow they don't show up to vote, uh, and 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 this you know makes very difficult to make any predictions on 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 elections.
0: Camila,
1: yes, if for me, yeah, in way and um, as you know. Uh, Communist. Uh, this has uh, uh, roots in you know the uh, Chilean subconscious and conscious, <laughs> and I think there are uh, there's a lot of uh, un- anti-communism uh, sentiments throughout. So of course uh, the communist candidate is always going to have some pushback from you know the the rest of uh, society that has been fed anti-communist propaganda for you know decades. But also, he was a very problematic candidate because he was an, you know, had been charges against, uh, you know, uh, of anti-Semitism and of male toxicity and, you know, hierarchy. And this is also has to do with the party. You know, uh, the, the Communist Party is a very disciplined party. It's like the longest Communist Party that has been, you know, in, 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 in the democratic game, you know, I think in the world and the largest one. So it is very institutionalized and it's very secretive. It's very, you know, uh, hierarchical. And even though uh, people were, you know, supporting him by voice only saying that, yes, at the end they didn't come through, as, as Aldo says. Uh, but I think um, more than the Hadwe defeat, which which um, it has been you know, uh, more analyzed. I think uh, the, the figure of, of Boric as this um, new left leader that is uh, closer to the center and closer to the establishment was very strong in a way. It was a strong for the independence to go and vote against communism, first of all, and in favor of a more centrist candidate. So um, he was a student leader, as um, Aldo was saying, and he's from Magallanes, so he's from the Patagonia, okay? And um, and I, as I see him, he uh, is kind of a new Ricardo Lagos <laughs> in the sense that comes from a very kind of struggle the, of the new left. However, quickly has been um, becoming more complacent with the institutions, which is very comforting for the center. So we need to uh, remind that uh, we need to remember that uh, he um, was the only member of his party, uh, Convergencia Social, who uh, was in that that 2 a.m. agreement about, you know, the constituent process, because his party didn't want to sign that agreement, but he went anyway, and he sat on in front row uh, with the uh, right-wing coalition surrounding him. So that picture, that photo will go in history as, you know, he is now saying, you know, I made this possible, basically, I yielded, and I made this possible. And other people are saying, well, we could have, you know, gained it without without that, and without any kind of two-thirds, supermajority and all these things that came through so he has been also labeled as a an amarillo like you know someone that is in the middle and is always where you know the popularity and the sun is shining in a way so that is i from the left is a, very is terrible in a way. We, we cannot deal basically with, you know, uh, halfway, you know, alternatives. However, for the center, who is still kind of in the hegemonic understanding of the society, they want someone that will give them stability even with a new face. So he could be, uh, you know, um, a kind of a bracket figure. And here with this idea of the bracket, I want to just mention that this, you know, presidential race is ridiculous <laughs> in the sense that when the new constitution comes into force, we need to select again our leaders because, you know, the, the, the probability that uh, our institutions will change. There's, for example, Congress could be unicameral. You know, the president could could be elected through different rules. So if we see the ex, the experiences in Latin America, the recent experiences, every time the constitution comes into force, we need to call new elections to select new leaders. And therefore, everything starts from zero. So we are putting all our, you know, analysis and power, oh, on, on you know, understanding this presidential election, even if the pre- new president could only last like for a year. Okay, so there is a lot of being played out, but I see more of as a show of force of what can be done after the constitution is approved and new elections are called. And I think this is more like a bracket and a kind of a show of force than a more kind of a, a conclusive understanding of what, who will be president and where are we going.
2: Sorry, just, just to add to that. I think I, I disagree with, with Camila in, in, in her um, picturing of Boric. Uh, I think this is, this is the common sort of understanding of, of his figure. I think it's, it's very portraying him as, as a new Lagos is telling basically that, that he has surrendered uh, his, his values because he, this is what Lagos uh, figure, uh, former socialist that then rules with neoliberal principles that gives away, uh, makes privatizations, you know, rules. Basically, uh, the president of the banking association says the, the, the business people love President Lagos. You know, this is Lagos. And to say that Boric is Lagos, I think this is a very bold and I would say unfair um, um, a comparison. I mean, if you read uh, Boric's program, is fairly leftist. I mean, it's very leftist. The blinks he has made to the center are mainly to the socialists. He has said particularly to the socialist base that is reminiscent of uh, Salvador Allende's drive. He hasn't said the, the sort of center-left more related to the neoliberalism. He hasn't sort of brought, brought them into the program or into the platform. He has said, well, those who agree with this program, and it's a, it's a government program that is very close to hardware's, to he says, well, those who vote for me, knowing that what, what I will do, when where I, are, are open to vote for me. But, you know, portraying him as the new Lagos, just because, uh, you know, he signed the, the agreement. And even he has said many times, I mean, he has never said that this is thanks to me. He said, you know, there are different ways. One is the popular uh, uprising. That was the main thing that pushed things. And he has said, well, of course, Signing that also meant that then there was a a, a schedule for a for a, a plebiscite, and and you know all forces were agreeing to that, but I think it, it, it's quite unfair to to portray him as, as the new Lagos. Uh, uh, but I'm but i think that from my perspective, he's more open. To to align with parts of the center, and in this, you know, the Communist Party has said that they will they will support him because they have to form a new government, and there's a there's a the will to form a government. In the past, you know, the left has he been been maintained in the fringes because they have you know played a more moral sort of game with 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 than a political game, right? So what's right and wrong rather than how do we do to get into power into and get our program uh, uh, done uh, while we are in power? And I think they understand this now. Yeah.
1: Well, that is exactly the problem. He accommodates. You accommodate to reality. He's a pragmatist. So therefore, and as we say in Chile, very different is to see someone sing than to play it yourself in guitar. So of, of course, platforms look great, you know, the platform of Obama looked great. <laughs> the moment you're in office and you're saying, well, it cannot be done, we need to accommodate, we cannot just, you know, go against economic growth. For radical change, you don't need people that accommodate to the system. People that are realists in the sense of what can be done within the, the framework, and in this in that way that I see that Boric very easily accommodates in order to be in power. There is a, a, a pragmatic strategy to get to power. And we need to remember that the Communist Party was part of the Nueva Mayoria, which is the new Concertación renewed, right? So they are not revolutionary in this way. So if they have an alliance with the Communist Party, it doesn't seem to say much in the sense of what they are actually going to accomplish. And that is in that way that this new figure from the new left that came from the struggle kind of grow up and became mature, as many people are saying, oh, you're so you know, uh, infantile, trying to change the world. Now he has matured and has kind of uh, become a very solid statesman kind of person. And that is, I don't think, the uh, type of leader that Chile needs now in order to uh, create radical change. I'm not saying that we have that leader, but I'm saying that this is kind of how I read his figure and he, what he could become if he uh, comes into office.
0: We have Boric on the, the left, Christian Democratic Union's Jasna Provoste, Sebastian Sichel on the right, the Republicanos cast on the far right. It's going to be a quite a scene in the presidential election with tons of different parties putting forward candidates. The Constituent Sem- Assembly is obviously just getting its work started, and it's hard to even predict, I think, how the Constituent Assembly will shape the presidential election and vice versa, and how people in the streets might unexpectedly intervene in it all. Final thoughts on what you're watching for, worried about, hoping f- to see in, in Chile?
2: Yeah, I think that uh, the, this idea of moralizing political debate is, is wrong. I mean, will lead to, to, not, to not good uh, <laughs> results. We're seeing this with the lista del Pueblo, which came in with with this we are the people, we are the actual you know people and, and and we can do things and and it's dismembering because because you know once you enter politics it's politics it's not morals right you cannot preach once you 're in politics you need to negotiate because you know you need to accomplish things you don't have an uh, uh, an hegemony you know you don't have fifty uh, percent uh, whatever it, it requires so I think the, 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 the biggest issue for the left now, now that we're talking about change and transformative change will be how to unite a, a, a fairly transformative program with electoral weight. And for this, you need to gather as many people as possible. And if you go for, in, in terms of, you know, distinguishing between friends and foes,
0: this will very easily
2: lead to marginalization of the left and, and
0: fragmentation again. Camila, parting shot.
1: Yeah, I think the fragmentation is the real trouble uh, for the left, for the 80 percent that voted, you know, in favor of the constituent process. And the right is always uh, well organized. Uh, we have Sebastian Sichel, who is, you know, a newcomer, if you will, and uh, renovated um, guy from the right, at least, you know, cosmetically. However, he is the candidate of the oligarchs. He is the candidate of, you know, the empresarios, you know, the, the, the uh, economic power in Chile. And of course, he has no problem uh, making a coalition with the far right extremist, xenophobic Partido Republicano. So they will have a strong show in the first round. And the, the, here is, the, you know, the problems of, you know, the, the mechanism. All this this, this uh, dispersion on the left will uh, make it very hard to actually vote for someone to make it to the second round that is the preferred candidate because uh, you will vote for you know your true your true leader or you will vote strategically right so this is a, a very it makes it very very hard to um, to predict and I think many people are disaffected by this campaign and because of the constituent process happening at the same time uh, I think it will be very depressed. The vote. And as I say, uh, it is not clear if the new president will be able to rule for more than a year, year and a half. So, the, whoever takes office will have the most difficult job ever that will be kind of this bracket figure that will be, you know, trying to materialize, you know, the, the constitutional promises in a very short time and being having enough popularity to be reelected after, because this is very different from the processes that we saw in Latin America in which they were leader led. So, Chavez, Morales, Correa, they all, you know, run again and they won. This is not the case in Chile. This is a people's led constituent process. So we cannot really uh, see, foresee what's going to happen in terms of leadership because there are so many things at play.
0: Well, Aldo Madariaga and Camila Vergara, thank you both very much.
1: Thank you for having me in the show.
2: Thanks to you, Dan. And thanks, Camila, for the discussion.
1: Thank you.
0: Rodo Matariaga is a professor of political science at the Universidad Diego Portales, Chile, and the author of Neoliberal Resilience, Lessons in Democracy and Development, from Latin America and Eastern Europe. Camila Vergara is a fellow at the University of Cambridge and the author of Systemic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Republic, and República Plebia, Guía Practica para Constituir el Poder Popular. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that people cannot be liberated as long as they are unable to obtain food and drink, housing and clothing, in adequate quality and quantity. Liberation is an historical and not a mental act, and it is brought about by historical conditions. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes most every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. The Dig was recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinators are Izzy Olive and Tammuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also... Leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does just telling friends about the show, why they should listen to it, etc. Please do make propaganda for us. And please do find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.